It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello and welcome to the show. I am excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Bob Apollo, founder of Inflection Point Strategy Partners, based in Reading in the UK, which is about 45 miles west of London, if I remember, and home to one of my favorite football clubs, the Reading Royals, who I believe are sitting in seventh place on the table right now. Bob, do you follow Reading? You know, you know that better than me. I do follow uh, a British football club, but it turns out to be Arsenal, right? Arsenal, you're a gooner. Okay, good. I'm a gooner. All right. Well, Bob, besides being an Arsenal fan, is an expert on the subject of value-based selling for the complex B2B sale. And we're going to talk today about value because, you know, it's in danger. Value is in danger of becoming one of those most overused words in sales. And like many words that fall into the category of a cliche, it begins to lose some of its meaning and its, and its value, which is really unfortunate because providing a brochure to a customer is not value. I mean, to me, value in sales is something tangible. It has worth, and delivering value to a prospect requires thought and preparation. So what is value from in sales? How can you as a sales rep or sales manager create it and deliver it to a prospect? Well, Bob's going to help us sort it all out. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, uh, I'll do my best, then. So before we get into that, take a minute, introduce yourself, sir. Tell us how you got started in sales and how you got to the point where you are today. Well, Andy, I uh, after graduating in business studies, I uh, I joined a, actually a relatively small tech-based company, uh, but within a couple of years, I realized that it wasn't going to give me the development opportunities I was looking for. And at that point, I made what I would regard in retrospect as the best career move in my uh, you know, my working history, and that was to join Hewlett-Packard at a time when it was um, an exemplar of the positive values of the sort of West Coast technology movement. And uh, ever since HP, which taught me uh, a number of things that I'll um, retain, I think, to the end and beyond of my working career, I progressively moved without really having a clear strategy to a series of relatively younger, uh, earlier stage uh, B2B focused technology based businesses, helping them establish new markets in many cases. And um, so they were they were beginning to sell into the UK for the first time or different parts of Europe. So these were a mixture, actually, many of them were US based companies wanting either to enter the UK, and I certainly had some experience of that, or to build on initial footprint in the UK and and create a truly uh, scalable business that was capable of achieving the obvious potential. And was was HP your favorite one to work for? uh, I have a couple of favorites. I think amongst the corporates, there's no doubt that HP was a favorite, but there have certainly been a, a couple since which exemplified many of the positive values that I saw in HP. Um, I'm not sure any of them remain independent now. Andy, you know, it's a, it's kind of a world in which uh, the successful uh, small to medium companies very often get swallowed up by the bigger corporates. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a very, I don't think there are any of the companies that I work for still exist under their same names these days. So yeah. I've lived through a number of IPOs and trade sales and uh, probably still bear the scars. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can, I can vouch for that as well. I've been sold as well as uh, I've acquired other companies, and that's right. uh, yeah, it's just the name of the game. So, 
You start your own company when? So I've been involved at Inflection Point for nearly 10 years now. I was looking back and realized that we founded the company in 2006, which was uh, the point at which I started to uh, uh, gradually uh, move away from uh, classic corporate life. Mm -hmm. How's it going? Very well. <laughs> Initially, in the first few years, it was fairly classic uh, interim or um, fractional management in right. sales and marketing. Right for fast-growing tech-based companies, and now I have a, a pool of clients, mostly UK-based but not exclusively, who are at what the VC community might call the expansion phase, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, beyond startup but looking to create a truly scalable and repeatable uh, business model, which after all is what their investors are looking for. Absolutely. So one thing you really focus on is this concept of value-based selling, which I, I think is a fascinating concept. I wrote about it extensively in my most recent book, Amp Up Your Sales. So to you, what is what is value in sales? When you talk about value-based selling, what, what do you mean in that regard? Uh, yeah, I think that's an excellent question because I think it's a phrase that's overused and widely misapplied. Um, in fact, uh, and this is not a recent phenomenon, I can remember at HP recognizing that many of the so-called value-added strategies that companies who were our competitors in the marketplace were uh, putting forward were really nothing much more than um, ways of adding cost to their operation without actually delivering a, uh, you know, a worthwhile return. Uh, uh, and, and so I think the whole phrase value-added strategy is unfortunately associated with all manner of baggage. Um, including it being used as a way of companies trying to justify a higher price by uh, promoting capabilities or functionality that in truth uh, the customer sees no practical purpose in and certainly um, would not, if they had any right mind, uh, be prepared to pay extra money for. Which really leads us to you know, how we can meaningfully define, define value, and I think it's really only in terms of what the prospect um, feels is worth an investment of either their time or their money or their attention. Um, you know, ultimately, the prospect is the, or the customer, right. as they become, is the ultimate arbiter of what has value and what does not have value. So in the selling context, what has value, right? I mean, it's, to me, I have a pretty, I'll give you my definition just to leave sure. it off. So, because I have a fairly simple definition. You know, I like to break things down to its most sort of irreducible form and say value in sales is something you provide the customer, whether it's information in the form of questions or data or insights or, you know, case studies, anything that's relevant that helps them move at least one step closer to making a decision. I mean, if you're... And by the way, that decision may be um, to to do nothing if that's the right thing for the customer. If that's the right thing, right? But if you if you're a sales rep and you're interacting with the prospect and you're not deliberately thinking or planning, let's say, to provide them something of value that helps them in that context, at least to me, there's no value in it. So why are you why are you spending their time? Well, and it's a it's a long-standing problem in the the business in which I operate, and I think many others. And it's that um, I think Forrester did a study uh, only a few years ago interviewing business decision makers and asking them 
uh, whether their you know their recollection of some of their recent um, sales meetings were a productive use of their time. And the figures, uh, from what I recall, were pretty shocking. It was something like only one in eight of meetings with salespeople. Uh, you know, when the when the business decision maker looked back at it. Uh, represented uh, a useful application of their time. And so what? what's the problem? Why, why do we think that is? Well, salespeople are just unprepared. Well, certainly they must have been unprepared, but what, was, what were they unprepared for? I mean, were they not? So uh, I think, and I believe the Forrester study reinforced this as well, that what uh, these decision makers found valuable or useful in conversation was learning things. You use the phrase, the word insight. I think that's become a pretty uh, common uh, mm -hmm. phrase associated with effective selling, hasn't it? But the, you know, they felt that during the course of this sales interaction, uh, they learned something new. They were stimulated to think about things from a different perspective. Um, and at the end of that interaction, they actually felt that some value had come from it. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean um, always that they would have uh, advanced in the way the salesperson wanted, you know, into the next stage of the buying process, but that they would have found that that interaction was a worthwhile use of their time. And that as a consequence, uh, they're much more likely to be prepared to... Um, give more of their time to that salesperson um, going forward. Yeah, and that's, and that's in alignment with what I was talking about. It's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that buyers have as many distinct, or maybe have more distinct stages, let's say, than most people sort of lay out in their decision-making process. The fact that somebody was in a meeting and found something of value of it, well, that in some way is going to aid their decision-making. So that, that moves them forward from a position they were before, right? So that, that was my definition of value. It just moves them forward. Now... Yeah. It creates respect, it creates trust, and it moves them forward. Exactly. So why is this so difficult? I mean, there's sort of a couple of extremes we see sort of in the, you know, the sales blogosphere, if you will. We've got our thought leadership spaces. On one end, there's sort of the challenger sale, which I know you're a fan of, which, you know, is, is talking about, hey, how do we help the customer sort of look at the problem differently than they were before? Yeah. Which is... Certainly very valuable, but to me it's not very scalable because I don't, I don't think, I think all, only a small percentage of sales reps are really capable of doing that, right? They have the combination of business acumen and smarts and experience and expertise to really help the customer do that. Yet everybody's capable of providing something of value if they're really thoughtful and deliberate about it. So how do you create a culture within a sales team to be focused on value-based selling? Yeah, so I think a lot of this, Andy, is about what I'd call moving the middle. Um, you know, you have a, a relatively small group in most organizations of salespeople who are uh, very obviously competent. Um, I think there was a study, might have been by Sales Benchmark Index uh, a little while ago, that suggested that 80, uh, 83 or 87% of revenues were being generated by 13% of salespeople. Anyway, it was like the Pareto principle, but mm -hmm. steroids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but they're not really the target, I think, of these exercises other than the following, to learn what we can about what they do well, uh, which is teachable, 
to the middle ground salespeople who have latent potential but um, have not so far, uh, you know, fully realized that personal uh, potential. And, you know, when I work with clients, that middle ground, the sort of moving the middle, uh, is normally a, a highly important and highly uh, productive initiative. Um, trying to understand what it is that the top performers say and do, what they ask, what they share, and uh, packaging it up in a way that's inherently uh, digestible for competent, uh, intelligent, inquisitive uh, middle-of-the-road salespeople who um, have a genuine desire to do better. Uh, I would also say that in any sales organization, there's typically also um, a, a group of low performers who simply don't have that potential, whether it is that they don't have the intellectual or emotional intelligence smarts or, or, or simply the, um, the attitudes uh, to uh, be capable of improving their performance. But there's normally a very big middle ground who could have much better conversations with their customers if they were coached and equipped in the right way. Uh, and so this is not, for me, just a training problem. Um, it's a coaching challenge, mm-hmm. and it's also um, a, a challenge to um, improve the conversational um, skills and competences of the middle ground salespeople who've got a very obvious opportunity uh, to do better, to deliver more value, to have better interactions with their customers, and as a consequence, as a natural consequence, uh, to be able to sell more. Yeah, when I think if you're if you're a business owner or a sales manager listening to this this podcast, is you have to think about that. Oftentimes, when you bring people in to train your team, you're oftentimes focused on that upper upper class. I call it the upper class of yeah. salespeople, and. You know, you actually get sort of the smallest return for your investment training from them because they were always closer to their peak capacity than this broad middle you talk about. And I sort of like drawing the analogy to economic terms. It's almost like, you know, politicians, especially in the U.S. now, we have a presidential election coming up, is everybody's talking about how we increase the prosperity of the middle class. Well, that's what you're trying to do with your sales, right? You're trying to, if you invest in making that middle group, that middle, I call the middle class of salespeople, mm-hmm. 5 to 10% more productive, that's going to generate way more sales than focusing on trying to get another 2 or 3% productivity out the top. The maths are pretty dramatic, actually, when, when you look at it. And um, some combination of increasing the um, competence and effectiveness of the middle ground, uh, probably also combined with um, systematic initiatives to um, reduce the sales cycle by eliminating avoidable delays mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of a natural lower bound uh, to many prospect organizations decision-making process um, but it, it's certainly true from my experience that many salespeople um, unnecessarily um, extend the decision-making schedule oh yeah by, um, failing to uh, interact to deliver the right value at the right point in the uh, prospect's decision-making process. Absolutely, and or in addition to which, they just, there's this, there's these, I call them oral tradi- traditions, oral traditions that exist within sales where people think that, geez, if I 
you know, give the prospect some information about something today, I need to give them a couple days to digest it, right? And then, then I'll get back to them. And it really doesn't work that way for the most part these days. You know, customers are in a hurry to make decisions. IDC did a study saying customers in the B2B space want to make decisions 40% faster. Well, you know, they can only do that. The sales rep sells to them faster. Uh, deliver them, delivers them more the value faster, price. right? Exactly. Doesn't just um, uh, deliver an insight, but pursues that insight. Mm-hmm. So one of my um, focuses with many of my clients is, you know, there's a huh, there's a great swing of uh, investment in content marketing, in thought leadership, and so on. Regrettably, the vast majority of the content that's being developed actually turns out not to lead the customer in any uh, new direction at all. But even if the organization is very competent at creating thought-provoking insights, well, the job's only just started at that point. And um, if we can equip salespeople to uh, develop those insights, to uh, you know, ask constructively... Uh, provocative and intelligent questions um, connected with those insights, well, then, of course, you get some traction in the decision-making process. Um, big part of this in the early part of the prospect's decision-making cycle, from, from my perspective, is to identify, help them identify uh, the cost of inaction, the cost and mm-hmm. consequences of um, sticking with the status quo. And um, it's very interesting. When I observe top sales performers, they, um, they avoid premature pitching of their product or solution. They very often invest more time than, frankly, some of their less effective colleagues are comfortable with in really scoping out the need for change, knowing that if they get real traction from that perspective, you know, if there's a compelling case for change, uh, if they can influence the customer's view of what they need to change to, then for sure the customer's subsequent decision-making can be very much uh, simplified. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, good. We're going to take a short break. and we're going to come back, we're going to talk more about how you inculcate this value-based selling culture into your sales team. Bob brought up some great points about continuous coaching is really required for it, but We'll get, dig into those details and come back. But before we go, Bob, I have a question I'm going to pose to you. A hypothetical scenario I pose to every one of my guests. And we'll give you some time to think about it during the break. So here's the scenario. You're a new sales manager hired into a company that dramatically, drastically needs to have its sales turned around. And upper management really anxious for this to happen. So what two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? So think about that and we'll come back after the break and get your answer. With me today, Bob Apollo. We'll be right back. Attention, sales leaders. Would you like to give your sales team the tools to drive more quality connects, scale their outreach, and spend more time selling? Well, you can with LiveHive. Get your ROI. Try it now at livehive.com forward slash ROI. That's livehive, L-I-V-E-H-I-V-E dot com forward slash R-O-I. Hi, this is Andy. I have a special offer for loyal listeners of Accelerate. It's a no-obligation free trial of my zero-time selling interactive online training. 
Now, I've worked with thousands of sales reps to teach them how to use my zero-time selling to boost their productivity and transform the results. And so if you want to learn the same proven strategies to help you open more doors, have more effective sales conversations with prospects, and close more orders, then my zero-time selling interactive training system is a fit for you. It's incredibly simple to start. Just take out your smartphone and text the word TRUST, that's T-R-U-S-T, to 96000. Now, do you have your phone ready? Send a text to 96000. That's a nine and a six followed by three zeros. Now, enter the single word message TRUST and hit send, and you hear right back from me with instructions on how to sign up for your free trial on my zero-time selling interactive training. I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back. My guest today is Bob Paolo, founder of Inflection Point Strategy Partners based in the UK. So we're talking about value-based selling, but I posed the scenario to you before the break. New sales manager into a company that really needs a sales turnaround. What two things would you do the first week that have the biggest impact? So I'd start, um, if I'm restricted to two things, uh, with assessing um, and coming to a you know, an informed judgment as quickly as I can about two of the critical factors in creating a scalable, effective sales organization. So one of them would be to really rigorously evaluate the current pipeline of opportunities. If I'm charged with uh, delivering results quickly, and particularly if I'm in a lengthy sales cycle environment, I'd want to be very, very clear about where are our best quality, highest potential opportunities. Um, and those are, the, those are the opportunities I'm going to focus my energies on. Mm-hmm. And I think the second complementary dimension is to start to assess the qualities and capabilities of my salespeople, because that's the material that's going to give me the, uh, if you like, the long-term uh, impact. Uh, but I'd want to make a judgment about, uh, start to make a judgment about which of the members of this new sales team that I've just been introduced to, um, I sense have that stuff which is likely to deliver um, high sales performance, a- and which of them may not be doing it today, but at least have a latent potential to do so. So opportunities and staff. Okay. Great. Good answer. Now, let me ask a follow-up question, though, because I think this is an important one that people don't really address often, is, is especially new managers coming into a situation, is, is my belief is that they oftentimes take too long to evaluate the staff, and that sometimes first impressions are based on data that you're looking at and you're talking, talking with them. Yeah, you know, time, critical situation, you know, time, you can't spend forever evaluating people. Sometimes that first decision needs to be a quick decision, and it's the right decision. Well, um, uh, one of the things I've been able to apply with uh, a number of my clients, uh, almost all of which have turned out to be um, Salesforce.com users, just because that uh, has tended to be the dominant uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. CRM uh, solution in in the B2B tech-based business space in, in which I you know spend most of my time. It's to immediately implement a sales analytics solution. And it's actually quite remarkable what some of the um, latest generation of analytics tools can measure retrospectively. You know, uh, pull like, out... Like Insight Squared or somebody like that. 
Insight Squared would be an excellent example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in fact, uh, one that I've worked with to great effect in a in a number of clients. And, you know, within days you can pull out, um, you know, historical performance, conversion rates from stage to stage, um, uh, visualize where salespeople have had um, what appear to be issues in either, you know, initial pipeline build or the progressive um, stages of qualification uh, mm -hmm. and refinement. Um, and, and, and very often the ability to visualize it shows you some things, prompts you to ask some questions um, that are not obvious just from classic forecast reporting and what have you. Yeah. No, I think so, it's a, a great tip for people that are listening. If you have a CRM system like Salesforce and you can get one of these analytic tools, certainly worth the investment because you do, as you said, you learn out, you learn fairly quickly. Oh, and uh, it, the great thing what's is going on. That they're capable of extracting a huge amount of historical information. It's not just, uh, you know, the clock starts ticking once you, you put an analytic solution in. It, uh, the best of them are capable of historically, you know, digging back into hidden information and uh, making it visible. Yeah, yeah, uh, they're, they're great tools. And, and visual comparisons are tremendously valuable. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I was talking to a company just last week. They were showing me their sales results over the prior uh, about 12 months, 12 months by stage. And you could see this one person that had the shortest sales cycle of all the sales reps by quite a bit and the number one performer. Just there, through, the, through, through, the, through the curve, you could see that this person was, that's a fairly short 10-day sales cycle, but they were, she was qualifying on price. <laughs> and if somebody wasn't qualified on price, they just dropped out of the pipeline, and she she was just killing it because she was getting people high quality prospects into her pipeline only. That's the only people she's spending her time with. You know that's a very interesting observation, and it certainly um, reinforces what I've observed. And, and it's it, it's a very simple pattern. Uh, it's that I believe top performing salespeople have too much respect for their own time to waste it on opportunities that are not likely to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So they have no compunction about qualifying out early. Right. They develop a, whether it's a sixth sense or it's analytic, whatever. They uh, qualify quickly. Whereas the challenge with many middle-of-the-road salespeople is they, you know, they sort of cling on to opportunities way past their sell-by date. Mm -hmm. The fear that in qualifying out, they will make the value of their pipeline look smaller. And, of course, at the headline value, um, that's true. But at the practical, closable value, entirely the opposite is true. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's it's an interesting point because it's so counterintuitive for many sales reps to think that they're actually better off with fewer prospects in their pipeline the, as, long as, a, as long as they're well qualified. There's a, a fairly substantial amount of work. I think Taz Group, for example, have done some, and uh, I'm sure others have as well, that say, um, you know, there's kind of an optimum uh, pipeline coverage. And uh, you, can, you can have too much in your pipeline, um, particularly if you're not qualifying it rigorously mm -hmm, enough. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up doing, therefore, is spreading your resources too thinly. And not being able to give the truly 
high potential opportunities the amount of attention they deserve. Exactly, exactly. So let's spend a few minutes here talking about how you begin then to inculcate this value-based selling culture into a company, especially we're talking about, as you said, the high performers, they pretty much get it. So this middle group, how do you, how do you train this? And then most importantly, how do you make the training stick? Yeah, and, and of course, there's a bunch of studies, including some done by the training companies themselves that suggest that um, conventional training has a perilously low retention rate. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, I've seen studies, maybe you have as well, that suggest 80 or 90% of the information conveyed in a, uh, a typical sales training environment is lost uh, or abandoned or ignored in four to six weeks. Yeah, no, I, that's the exact figure. I think that maybe came out of a study that uh, Xerox Learning Systems did all about their own training and their own people going through it. Is, yeah, is that, the number I saw was 90% in 30 days. So, so I think, uh, actually, there's almost a philosophical problem at the heart of much of that conventional sales training. And that's that it tends to um, uh, focus its time on developing the skills of a group of individual salespeople rather than on building what I'd call a customer acquisition competence at an organizational level. Okay. So to do that, you need to go beyond merely um, uh, training salespeople in methodologies or skills. So the approach we take um, actually says... Um, if we're asked to do off-the-shelf sales training, um, we'll refuse. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll only go about doing it if uh, given an opportunity to have a sort of discovery phase uh, in, during which we'll try and we'll interview some of the top sales performers, but also some of the ideal customers that the company's got to try and understand patterns of both successful sales performance, but also, um, you know, common patterns which can be used in qualifying um, the right sort of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, before doing a day's worth of training, um, our goal will always be to undertake that discovery, to look for the patterns. I think one of the things that an external uh, agency can do is to identify patterns uh, you know, that are very obvious to an outsider, but where, you know, you might suffer if you're inside the organization for the can't see the wood for the trees uh, challenge. Um, we'll then um, design um, a handful of key elements, which will certainly include looking at the sales process and recharacterizing it in terms of um, stages in the buying decision journey and what salespeople need to know and do at each of those stages and what milestones we need to look for and what metrics we need to look for. Um, And then the sales training ends up actually being very customized. It, for example, um, seeks to equip uh, salespeople with uh, talking points uh, which are relevant to each stage of the buying decision cycle. You know, what do we need to know and do? at each stage? What stories can we tell? Um, How do we develop uh, our economic case? And and, and that's really, for me, almost always developing the case for change 
at an earlier stage in the sales dialogue before we develop the return on investment. Um, you know, what evidence can we bring to bear mm-hmm. as salespeople? What are the frequently asked tough-to-answer questions that our top sales performers have mastered? How can we learn from their uh, their skills in that area? So you end up then not just with a training program, but a set of takeaways um, that are designed to uh, uh, facilitate, you know, the salespeople going out into the um, into the world of the customer and uh, having uh, very well targeted uh, conversations. And then how do you how do you reinforce that? So once you've put that structure into place, then what's the key to make sure they adopt it and continue to refine their abilities and improve their abilities? Uh, never train the salespeople until and unless you've uh, trained and engaged the first level sales managers. It's another part of missing part of the equation in a lot of sales training. Um, you know, the statistics that we've been discussing in the last few minutes, I think, show that without reinforcement, um, most of the information conveyed in any conventional training course is lost. So you, you've got to ask, well, who's going to do the reinforcing? And frankly, if the first-line sales managers in their coaching, in their interaction with the salespeople are not um, motivated and equipped to do it, I don't see anybody else doing it. Well, I think it's a great a great point. I think it's so often lost. And for people listening to this, when you're thinking about investing in sales training, Bob's point is so key is you have to enroll and enlist those frontline sales managers because into this whole culture change and culture shift that you're making. Because if you don't, then, as you said, they're not going to coach in that methodology. They're not going to reinforce it. And that investment then will sort of fall by the wayside. It's a classic change management challenge. I think most sales is about change management, you know, persuading the prospect of both the need for change and giving them confidence that the change you're proposing is going to deliver the desired outcomes. Um, But sales training also, if you're not trying to change behavior, what are you trying to do? Exactly. Exactly. Well, good. Well, great conversation. So now we're moving to the last part of the of the so last part of the show. Excuse me. Last segment where I ask you some rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers. Or you can elaborate as much as you wish. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, what's the most powerful sales tool in your personal arsenal? Great question. Um, and I, I, yeah, to be honest, and I, I, I've got a slightly analytical bent anyway. I'd say it was, uh, you know, a sales analytics uh, solutions because not because it'll lead you to the answer necessarily, but that it will cause you to ask the right questions about how can we improve. Love it. So next question. What tool do you use for managing your own sales or that you can't live without? Uh, actually, you know, it's probably the one I really couldn't live without is, uh, I'd say would be LinkedIn. It's enabling me to build a reputation, uh, communicate and target, um, you know, exactly the right sort of audience. Next question. Who's your sales role model? You know, my first, uh, manager at HP, um, guy called Jeff, um, Evans, who uh, taught me uh, a number of things. He certainly um, helped me understand that sales is not merely an art, 
but also it's got elements of science and engineering to it. And by engineering, I mean, you know, what are the repeatable behaviors mm-hmm. to inculcate? Mm-hmm. And when it came to recruiting, he was really clear, uh, you know, recruit first for attitude and behavior and for the ability to fill in with, uh, you know, the uh, experience. Uh, if you only recruit on experience and you ignore these sort of essential dimensions of attitude and behavior, you'll make more bad hiring decisions than you will good ones. Excellent advice. So next question, what's the one book, whether it's sales book or not, one book every salesperson should read? Huh. Well, you know, you've referred to, uh, you know, at least one of the ones that I uh, recommend to clients, which is uh, Challenger Sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also seen tremendous value in uh, Aaron Ross's predictable revenue as a way of thinking about how to build the uh, the top of the funnel. Mm-hmm. Actually, one that I keep coming back to because it's got so much uh, relevant thinking, even though it was published a little while ago, is Jeff Tool's uh, Mastering the Complex Sale. All good books. Excellent book. Okay, good choice. Here's the tough question. What's your favorite music to listen to when you have to sort of pump yourself up for an important sales call or meeting? <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether I pump myself up very often, but I will tell you that my uh, the ringtone on my phone is... Uh, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Uh, not necessarily because I'm a, you know, they're my... An Axl Rose fan? Number one band, but simply because it's got such a long guitar riff that you, uh, you know, the ringtone fades before the vocals kick in. <laughs> All right, that's Guns N' Roses. As I tell people, so far on uh, on our list, ACDC's number one, Guns N' Roses is on the list certainly now, though, too. So it's great. Very good. So what's the first sales activity you do every day? Uh, honestly, I guess, and I think it's a sales activity, is to check my email, and the second is to go to LinkedIn. Okay. No, Last. sorry. Sorry. I'll tell you what. I go to my uh, my HubSpot implementation, which actually pulls in um, you know, everybody who's either visited the site or mm-hmm. commented on social media in mm-hmm. the uh, last 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, I do likewise. So... Uh, last question for you. What's the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople? That is a great question. And I, I wish I could give you a top of the head, um, slick answer to that. I mean, it's mostly variations of, uh, it, it, at least if I'm talking to somebody who wants to learn, um, it's, uh, you know, how they can, um, win more business. Uh, and uh, my my response to that normally, and it rather neatly closes the loop, is uh, to, you know, find ways of delivering true value to your customers and your prospects. That's a great answer. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. My guest has been Bob Apollo, founder of Inflection Point Strategy Partners based in the UK, just outside London. Bob, tell folks how they can find out more about you. About me? Yeah, or the company. Well, so um, I can be uh, found um, at the Inflection Point website. That's pretty straightforward. www.inflection with an X, inflection-point.com. Um, I, uh, 
I've thoroughly enjoyed the career I've had in corporate life, but I tell you, I'm enjoying even more now uh, working with the sort of growth phase companies, the expansion phase companies that, um, you know, um, are my current uh, client portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, my, my philosophy is fairly straightforward. I think there are more than enough excellent, sales trainers, sales coaches. There are many very competent marketing agencies. I think what organizations are going to need, need today and are increasingly going to need is to mix, is to blend, to bridge the marketing message with the sales conversation. And that's probably where I, to be honest, I mean, it's great coaching salespeople and seeing them grow, but also seeing that coherence, that sort of alignment, um, across sales and marketing um you know wh when it happens it has such a powerful impact not just on results but how good people feel about working for an organization yeah, i agree no it's a good point when all star all the pieces are, are working in tandem uh it makes a big difference in how people all pointed in the right direction or sharing a same philosophy actually even better all rewarded um, for, you know, achieving the right level of success. Right. Well, good. Well, Bob, thank you very much. And I remember people who are listening here to us today, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to accelerate your success. And subscribing to this podcast is an easy way to do that. That way you'll make sure you don't miss any of our conversations with top business experts like our guest today, Bob Apollo, who share their experience and expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.